The conflict in Vietnam seemed to encompass all aspects of modern combat in the 1960s and 70s, from guerrilla fighting to armored warfare, from technologically advanced air power to tiny four-man boats armed with machine guns. There seemed to be no end of dangerous assignments for the forces of the United States committed to repelling the communist Viet Cong insurgents from South Vietnam and their supporters in the North. However, some jobs will always stand out a little more than others when it comes to the risk involved. In today's episode, we're going to look at just three of some of the most dangerous jobs undertaken in the Vietnam War, one each involving the US Army, Navy, and Air Force. Welcome to Wars of the World. For centuries, the people living in Southeast Asia relied heavily on the Mekong River for transport, with it acting like a natural highway through the dense jungle. Ranked as the 12th longest river in the world, the Mekong stretches some 3,050 miles and runs from China through Laos, Cambodia, and eventually into South Vietnam, where it empties into the sea via the sprawling Mekong Delta. The delta itself comprises of hundreds of small rivers spread out over a 15,600-mile area and has long seen heavy boat traffic in the form of junks, sampans, and rafts. For the communist Viet Cong guerrillas, the Mekong Delta was a vital logistical hub which they used to transport men and equipment across South Vietnam, blending in with the so-called boat people so as not to attract attention. From the start of combat operations, the US Navy was tasked with locating the Viet Cong transports and capturing, or if necessary, destroying them and their crews to starve the Viet Cong forces of their supplies. But there was a problem. The Navy's existing patrol boats were designed primarily for use in deeper waters than those encountered on the Mekong, where mud and vegetation could easily foul their propellers. Therefore, as a matter of urgency, they issued a request to US boat manufacturers to produce a new type of small patrol boat that could operate in waters as shallow as only two feet deep. Enter the Hatteras Yacht Company of New Bern, North Carolina. More accustomed to designing river pleasure craft, the company decided to adapt one of its designs to meet the requirements for the US Navy, with a prototype being produced in less than seven days. Built by the United Boat Builders Company of Bellingham in Washington, the new boats were designated as Patrol Boat River, or PBR Mark I, this eventually giving way to the nickname Pibber. The PBRs were 31 feet long and powered by twin diesel engines, which produced forward thrust via underwater jet pumps, as opposed to conventional propellers. Additionally, instead of a rudder, the PBRs were steered by turning the nozzles for the jet pumps, making the PBRs extremely agile. Maximum speed was in excess of 25 knots, but perhaps even more amazing than that was its ability to be going from top speed to a dead stop almost instantaneously, thanks to a U-gate fitted on the nozzles which could be rotated downward, immediately sending the jets of water forwards instead of backwards. 
typical crew complement was four, with a boat captain, a helmsman, and two gunners, who manned 50 caliber machine guns, fore and aft. The boat also came equipped with a grenade launcher, but as was often the case in wartime, armament was unofficially increased by their crews looking for a bigger punch. These boats undertook stop and search inspection of junks, rafts, and sampans, looking for their elusive enemy, while constantly aware that even the most innocuous looking craft could be harboring a VC fire team armed with AK 47s and RPGs. The men who served on the Pibbers were enlisted men, either looking to improve their chances of promotion or simply men wanting to experience the sting of combat. In either case, there was plenty of experience to be had, for very quickly, the Viet Cong recognized the threat these boats posed to their operations, leading them to set up ambushes along the river, while in some cases, the PBRs and VC boats engaged in running gun battles with each other. The fighting was as intense as any taking place on land, with the patrol boat crews accounting for over 1,000 communist guerrillas killed in combat in 1967 alone. But this, of course, came at a price. American statistics show that one in three sailors assigned to the PBRs were wounded or killed in combat during their tours of duty, but there was never a shortage of volunteers from the Navy's big ships looking to get a piece of the action. As the crews gained experience, they adapted their equipment and tactics to counter the Viet Cong. Boats operated in teams, spread out along the river, so if one boat was ambushed, the supporting craft could race in and assist. Eventually, air support in the form of Navy UH-1B Hueys reconfigured as gunships began working in conjunction with the boats, bringing heavy firepower onto any engagement. The crews also began receiving more capable PBR Mark IIs, which addressed many of the shortcomings in the original model that appeared during combat. In their vital role, the PBRs destroyed or captured some 6,500 vessels supporting the Viet Cong campaign. They also undertook combat rescue operations, supported special forces teams, and even delivered humanitarian aid to South Vietnamese towns and villages cut off by communist forces. For their courage, the PBR crews were both highly decorated and respected, with two receiving the Medal of Honor, the highest award for valor in the US Armed Forces. 14 others received the Navy Cross, the second highest award in the service, while untold numbers received silver stars, bronze stars, and purple hearts. Since the end of the war, five ships in the US Navy have been named after PBR crew members, emphasizing just how well regarded these men were, both for their courage and in many cases, their sacrifice. As soon as the US involvement in Vietnam changed from military assistance and training to a full combat role, US President Lyndon B. Johnson authorized a massive aerial campaign against North Vietnam, dubbed Operation Rolling Thunder. The aim of the operation was to force the North Vietnamese to halt their support for the Viet Cong insurgents in South Vietnam by destroying their military and industrial infrastructure and intercepting the supply lines running to the south. As the operation began on March 2nd, 1965, confidence amongst the pilots of the US Air Force and Navy was extremely high. They fielded some of the most advanced and capable warplanes in the world, while the North Vietnamese had just a handful of significantly less advanced MiG fighters to oppose them. What the North Vietnamese did have, however, 
were huge numbers of anti-aircraft guns, but these were limited to low and medium altitudes, meaning US aircraft could fly over them as they transited to and from their targets. However, the belief in the safety of altitude was smashed on July 24, 1965, when a flight of McDonnell Douglas F-4C Phantom IIs found itself the subject of an attack by a new and deadly weapon, the SAM, or surface-to-air missile. One F-4C was destroyed by a Soviet-made S-75 missile, known to NATO as the Guideline, becoming the first of 110 US Air Force planes to fall to SAMs over the skies of Southeast Asia. US commanders authorized a retaliation strike against the SAM site, but by the time the American planes arrived over the target two days later, the weapons had been removed and replaced with decoys and surrounded by anti-aircraft guns. The American planes dived in to attack what was, unknown to them, a useless target, and the anti-aircraft guns filled the sky with shells. Four more planes were lost. It was an overwhelming success for the Vietnamese, and a stark warning to the US air commanders that they could not strike the North with the impunity they had previously expected. Something had to be done. In August of 1965, the US Pacific Command instigated a program in which Air Force and Navy aircraft would be tailored to nullify the SAM threat. Dubbed Iron Hand, the project sought to outfit North American F-100 Super Sabre attack aircraft with sensors that could guide them towards the SAM sites by detecting and following the radar beam used to target American aircraft. The Super Sabre would then mark the target with its 20mm guns or rockets for a follow-up force of Republic Thunder Chiefs to bomb the battery, thus neutralizing the SAM threat. It sounds simple enough, but there were two very big catches to this plan. Firstly, in order to trace the radar beam back to its source so the Thunder Chiefs could attack, the Super Sabres would themselves have to be detected by the radar, leaving them open to attack by surface-to-air missiles. Secondly, while the equipment they had on board could give them a direction, it couldn't give them a range to the SAM sites. This meant that if the crews of the Super Sabres didn't spot the sites with their default sensors, namely the old Mark I human eyeball, then they could very well find themselves flying right over the SAM battery and making themselves an easy target. To the pilots, this kind of mission became known as a wild weasel flight, for like a weasel, they were going right into the den of their prey. The first Wild Weasel Squadron was the 354th Tactical Fighter Squadron, which flew from air bases in Thailand and comprised of pilots more used to flying single-seat model aircraft rather than the F-100F Super Sabres. Starting out with four Super Sabres, after 45 days of operations against North Vietnamese targets, the 354th had just one left. Four aircrew had been killed, while two more were captured and spent the rest of the war as POWs. Three more had been wounded from anti-aircraft fire and exploding SAMs. With such a terrifying attrition rate, two of the original cadre of pilots found they could not take the strain and quit. Replacement crews and pilots materialized in early 1966, but it was obvious something more had to be done. The United States needed a new weapon. The AGM-45 Shrike was based on the AIM-7 Sparrow air-to-air -air missile and could detect and follow the SAM tracking radars on its own. This freed the planes to make a good escape once the missile had been fired. It was not a perfect weapon, however, 
being relatively short-ranged, which means there was still a great deal of risk to the aircraft until the weapon was launched. Also, the North Vietnamese quickly realized that if they turned their radars on and off intermittently, then the Shrike wouldn't have a consistent radar source with which to track it, causing to miss the target. All these problems were amended in the much larger and more advanced AGM-78 standard missile, which was not only longer ranged, but had a simple memory system installed, which meant that even if the North Vietnamese turned off their radars, the missile would continue to fly to where the signal originated. The Wild Weasels fought a brutal campaign until they flew their last missions in 1972. In combat, 46 F-105Gs were lost during the war, while many others suffered heavy damage from combat or fatigue. As to how many SAM sites they destroyed, it is difficult to ascertain, with figures going as high as 50% of operational SAM sites at some time being destroyed by wild weasels. What is certain, however, is just their mere presence severely hampered the North Vietnamese missile operator's ability to target strike aircraft, and the weapons and tactics developed over the skies of Vietnam laid the groundwork for the next generation of wild weasel, the F-4G Phantom II, which enjoyed unprecedented success against Iraqi missile sites during the 1991 Gulf War. The sight of the UH-1 Huey helicopters swarming the skies like angry bees as they carried tens or even hundreds of men across the country is probably the most enduring image of the Vietnam War. Landing in openings in the jungle, some natural and some made by the US Air Force's daisy cutters, the men would be offloaded where they would set up a defensive perimeter in case of an ambush before moving out. However, very quickly US forces learned that landing in a combat zone didn't necessarily mean that danger was lurking all around them. For sometimes, the danger came from below. Both the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army made extensive use of underground tunnels to support their operations. These tunnels varied in size, from small dugouts, which were used to find shelter and respite from the fighting, to large, intricate, and sprawling underground complexes, complete with storage areas, restrooms, hospitals, and even classrooms for political indoctrination, and all were out of sight of the American forces marching overhead. In some cases, the Vietnamese even dug tunnels under American bases to carry out sneak attacks and assassinations of senior personnel. Worse still for American forces, the entrances to the tunnels were incredibly small, being designed to be just big enough for the average Vietnamese adult male to squeeze into. Therefore, for the majority of American service personnel, it was impossible for them to squeeze through. Grenades and tear gas were both used to try and kill anyone in the tunnels, but this met limited success. American and Australian troops attempted to use dogs to go in and drag the enemy soldiers out, but the dogs couldn't smell booby traps and after a while, their handlers flatly refused to sacrifice any more animals in vain. Therefore, it was decided to train a group of specialist combat engineers who were similar in size to their Vietnamese counterparts to go into the tunnels, gather intelligence, kill or capture anyone inside, and eventually plant charges to destroy the tunnel. These men were known as the Tunnel Rats, and there have been few jobs in wartime that could compare to the horror of this assignment. Given the physical dimensions the role required, many tunnel rats were quite young 
with soldiers as young as 17 receiving the specialist training in the US. So as soon as they were 18, they could be sent to Vietnam, sometimes on their actual birthday. Training was extremely tough. They were taught close quarters combat, how to identify the varied and highly creative booby traps created by the Viet Cong, and how to plant explosive charges. But perhaps more than anything else, their mental training took precedence, with their instructors instilling an unquestioning kill-or-be-killed mentality in their recruits. However, even with the best training, there was no guarantee of success once in the tunnels. With the heavy weapons that US troops relied upon in battle actually a hindrance in the tunnels, the tunnel rats were seldom armed with anything more than a 9mm pistol. Even then, they were taught to only fire if it was absolutely necessary. For in the darkness, the muzzle flash of the standard pistol was enough to temporarily blind them, while the noise of the shot would travel all the way through the tunnel, alerting more of the enemy. Tunnel rats usually operated in two-man teams, with a lead man who went in first, followed shortly after by a backup man. This meant that the lead man had support should he be shot by an enemy, or injured by one of the many booby traps laid by a retreating foe. However, in some instances, it was not unheard of for the two men to get separated as they fumbled their way through the pitch-black underground maze of tunnels. Veteran tunnel rats have also often told stories of how in some instances they walked right into an enemy soldier without knowing he was there, so close that they could smell them. But as one former tunnel rat named Douglas Graybill Jr. explained, the biggest fear involved in such operations was coming out of the tunnels. A lot of the time they didn't know where they were and whether they would encounter friendly faces or enemy ones. It was not unheard of for tunnel rats to emerge out of a tunnel entrance, only to be immediately shot or bayoneted by the enemy troops he was pursuing. In the tunnels, the claustrophobia coupled with the fear of booby traps and enemy troops was often enough to break even the most hardened of minds. Understandably, many tunnel rats experienced crippling post-traumatic stress disorder after the war was over, and many of their symptoms were linked to their experiences in the tunnels. Some, for example, couldn't sleep without the light in their rooms being left on, because their minds would immediately go back to being trapped in the dark. Others even found they couldn't stay indoors for too long without becoming overwhelmed by the fear that death was stalking them. In total, there were some 700 specially trained tunnel rats. Of these, 36 were killed and another 200 wounded, an attrition rate of one in three. As for the survivors, we may never know just how much harm came to them psychologically from their experiences, and how this impacted the rest of their lives. For many of them, it would be safe to say that even going on to live long lives back home, they never completely left the tunnels of Vietnam behind. And there you have the deadliest jobs of the Vietnam War. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.